Well, good morning. We're going to carry on now with Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, but uh, we'll start off with, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you to seek for your guidance, seek for your blessing, as we seek to understand your Son. And we know that that is your will, that you should give us that understanding. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that really and truly you'll open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things out of your, your word. And that these incidents that perhaps are well known to us might live again in our lives and in our imaginations so that really and truly the Spirit of Christ might be with us. Without which we know we are nothing and we are none of his. Please help us, Father, in our desire to be with him eternally. For his sake. Amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter 8. We've finished now with the, the crowds coming down from the, the mountain where the Lord has been teaching about uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he find? He is met by a, a leper, verse 2, who comes to him and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, there is a difference between healing and cleansing. These are two distinctly different ideas, two distinctly different words. And so this man comes and says, Lord, if you will, you can cleanse me. Now, that's significant, that he asks for cleansing, which, of course, implied healing, uh, but he, he uses that word, and not, not healing. Now, he wanted to be healed, obviously, but he wanted that so that he might be able to go into the temple and participate in, in spiritual life. And I think straight away you see there a, a, an insight into our motivation. If we are seeking for healing, if we're seeking for any blessing... What's the reason we want that? Why do you want that healing? Why do you want health? Why do you want life? Why do you want all the stuff that goes with life? The ultimate reason should be for spiritual ends. And I want this because I want to be involved in, in God's work and as it was in, in those days in the, the life of the temple. And so the Lord touched him and he touches a leper. And of course, as you're aware, to touch the unclean according to to Mosaic uh, principle, made you unclean. And a staggering 28 times in the synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Lord is described as touching people. Now, it's as if it goes out of its way to emphasize this. This touching of people, particularly of lepers and unclean persons, was something which the Lord loved to do. And I think he does this in order to really show that he rejects and rejects radically and totally any idea of contamination by contact, any idea of guilt by association. And those ideas, the, the, the root of them, have destroyed so much spirituality, have destroyed so many Christian communities, uh, well-meaning families, etc., broken up by this sense that we can't have anything to do with so-and-so because we'd be guilty by association. <clears throat> now, it's maybe not the, uh, the in thing to actually use that term, although the community that I grew up in quite unashamedly spoke of contamination by communion, guilt by association, and other, other such ideas. Uh, these ideas are actually uh, quite rooted, it seems to me, within all of us. We would all prefer to practice them and believe them. Oh, she's associated with him, and he's uh, you know, associated with so-and-so. This is uh, simply how human beings think. And the Lord is is really getting at the root of this. He knew that this was the Jewish mindset. 
And 28 times he touches, he's recorded as touching the unclean. And that's just the times it got recorded. I think the, the impression is that he did this a lot. This was a thing with him. And he says to, to the man, be clean. Now, in chapter 10, verse 8, the Lord's going to tell the disciples to go and cleanse the lepers. He doesn't say heal the lepers. He says cleanse the lepers. Now, whose job was it to cleanse the lepers? Don't forget all that we're reading here is rooted absolutely in the, in the mindset of, of Jewish people who were familiar with the law of Moses. It was the job of the priests to cleanse lepers. And yet not only does the Lord do it, but he asks his followers to go and do it. Now, as you know, his followers were secular people. They were fishermen, ordinary uh, guys. Uh, they were not super religious, uh, highly holy kind of people. They were secular Jews, uh, secular Palestinian Jews who were just getting on with their lives up there in Galilee. And the Lord is saying, you are going to be the new priesthood. You are going out there to, to cleanse the lepers. But isn't that the job of the priests? No, it's your job. In this new Israel that I'm creating, in this new Judaism, in this new setup, you are the ones to do that. <clears throat> now, that does not mean that the Lord sort of forgot about the Jewish priesthood. He wanted to save them as well. In verse 4, he says, don't tell anyone, but go your way and show yourself to the priest. Now, when he says, don't do this, but do that, it doesn't necessarily mean, literally, don't do that at all. What it, it could mean, and there's a number of languages uh, today where this kind of construction is quite common, uh, do not so much do this as do that. So I think he's saying, uh, not necessarily, don't breathe a word to anyone, because it's kind of obvious that you know he'd been healed, uh, but go particularly to the priests. And offer the gift that Moses commanded, and I suppose uh, in their, their times virtually nobody had ever made use of that uh, part of the law of Moses to be cleansed from leprosy and go and offer a sacrifice. So this would have been a, a first time probably in the experience of those priests to have a man coming saying, I was a leper and I've been cleansed, now I'd like to just offer the sacrifice Moses commanded. And he says you should do this for a testimony unto them, unto the priests. So he wanted even to save the priesthood, the very group of people who put him to death. And this was not simply a nice idea. In Acts 6 verse 7, you read, A great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. So actually, this hope against hope that somebody might respond, even though humanly speaking at the time, it would have seemed absolutely impossible that the priests would have responded, uh, this paid off, and faith and hope was wonderfully rewarded in that. And this is how it should be in our lives as well, that we are preaching really hope against hope, knowing that on the surface level nobody is interested, but the word will not return void. And, of course, although the Lord was replacing those Levitical priests with a new priesthood made up of the secular disciples that were following him, it doesn't mean that he did not want to save the, uh, the, the old priesthood. He did. Now, of course, for those disciples, it was a pretty hard idea to, to accept that actually 
you have got to take responsibility, that you are the priests, because the whole mentality was with them, as it is with so many people today, that someone else will do the job for me. Get the religious specialists on the job. That is, be it a priesthood, a pastoral team, as Protestants would say, uh, the brethren, uh, as more conservative groups would say, they'll do it. This is not my deal, this is for someone else to do. But the Lord is saying, no, no, you, you are the ones. And part and parcel of following me is that you are the new priesthood for other people. Okay, verse 5. When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion. Now, that, that's a, a really dummy translation. The idea is not that they came unto him. The idea is that they worshipped him. And it's the same word in verse 2. There came a leper and worshipped him. So, you can see then that there's um, a parallel being drawn between the centurion coming to him and worshipping him and a leper coming to him and worshipping him. It's as if there's a parallel between the socially isolated, the, the leper, and the, the, the wealthy, respected centurion. And the point is that they were both experiencing the same utter desperation which led them to cast themselves down before the Lord and beg for his action in their lives. So in the community that gathers around Jesus, social differences are eliminated. When Paul talks in Galatians about there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, and male, female, and so forth, the idea is that that community is created. But how is it created? It is created by each individual realizing their desperation. And if there is not that sense of desperation, if there is not that sense of conviction of personal sin and need, desperate need for the Lord, you won't get unity. You won't get that kind of unity that Jesus envisaged in John 17 that Paul talks about in his letters. You certainly will not get that unity by writing position statements, cleverly uh, crafted forms of words that doesn't create unity. What creates unity is these people uh, drawn to the same position before Jesus, uh, despite coming from totally different backgrounds, realizing their desperation. Now, this theme continues in verse 6. My servant lies at home. This slave. Slaves are pretty, pretty sad, in a pretty sad situation. They didn't even own their own bodies. My slave lies at home, sick, and needs your help. Now, verse 14, Peter's wife's mother was lying at home, same Greek word, sick, and needing Jesus. So again, the centurion's servant and Peter's mother, and it seems a man and a woman, are here paralleled. And again, the point is being made that people from different lives and different circumstances are brought basically into the same position before the Lord Jesus due to their need for healing and salvation at his hands. So then that is the key to unity. You want to get unity in the church, in an individual church, in, in a, a group of churches, in a community, in a so-called fellowship. The key is not pieces of paper. The key is each of us genuinely recognizing our desperate need 
for him and people from all walks of life, different social backgrounds, be it the leper, be it the, the centurion, be it Peter's mother's, uh, Peter's wife's mother, uh, be it the centurion slave, they're all brought, we are all brought to the same position. Verse 6, my, my servant is grievously tormented. And this theme that I have touched on is developed here yet again, a stage further. Because later on in this chapter, you again encounter this same word for grievously tormented. And it's in verse 26. Um, <clears throat> Oh, sorry, verse 24. Uh, there arose a great tempest in the sea. A grievous, a grievous uh, tempest, a grievous torment in the sea. And, in fact, later on you, uh, you read in Mark 6, verse 48, that the disciples toiled to bring, to row the boat to land. And it, again, it's the same word. They were grievously tormented in trying to row their boat to land. Matthew 14, verse 24, again there's a problem on the sea in the boat. Their ship was tossed or tormented, same word, grievously tormented, in the midst of the Sea of Galilee. Now what's this trying to tell us? This centurion's servant is grievously tormented, and then the disciples are grievously tormented, out there in the middle of uh, in the middle of the sea, and this happens again. And they they're grievously tormented, tormented trying to row the boat to land. And then, as I say, it happens again in Matthew fourteen twenty four, uh, when again they're in trouble on the sea. The point was surely that they would understand that as the Lord had had saved that grievously tormented servant. So the Lord was going to save them. They, in their grievous torment on the lake, were intended to think back to the grievous torment of that slave and to see the Lord uh, had healed that servant, that slave, from grievous torment. He could also get them out of their situation. Now this then not only uh, brings that slave into parallel with the disciples, but it also shows how situations repeat in human life. And what may go on in one life is actually paralleled and goes on in another's, another's life. And that is all set up by God, because uh, life is not just a, a chain of events that happens at some kind of random. These events, these situations are set up consciously by God and by the Lord Jesus, so that we might learn, so that we might see that as that person suffered this situation and was saved out of it by faith, so I also am suffering, uh, in essence, the same situation and will also be saved out of it. And you also see how in the case of the disciples, this grievous torment uh, repeated. In this situation here in Matthew 8, when they're in trouble on the water, and again in Matthew 14, again trouble on the water, trouble at sea. Again, same word, they're grievously tormented. And so, really, circumstances don't only repeat between human lives, but also within our lives, because the Lord is seeking to teach us and to lead us forward, like any good teacher does, repeating the lesson. 
Well, verse 10, it says that the Lord marveled at this centurion's faith, and he said, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The fact that he marveled at another person's faith, when his level of faith was so much higher than the faith of, of anyone. Also told uh, same word in Mark 6, verse 6, that he marveled at the unbelief of people. I think in this idea that the Lord marveled at faith, the extent of faith and the extent of unbelief, I, I think this shows a sensitivity in him, a huge sensitivity. And I think it's a window into the beauty of his personality and character. Because when you think of how busy he, he was, his mental tiredness, his physical exhaustion, the pressures that he was under, his demanding program, his extreme loneliness... All this, just on a basic physiological level, on a basic emotional level, basic psychological level, would tend to take away sensitivity. I've got a job to do, and I'm here to do it. But he wasn't like that. He retained an amazing sensitivity. An incredible sensitivity, really. Both to faith and unbelief. And he says that he hadn't found so great faith. So he was in search of faith in people, and he found it in this, this guy. Now, in another uh, set of parables later on, we're going to read that the Lord was like a man seeking treasure in a field. And the field is the world, and the treasure is us, and he finds it. He's seeking pearls, and he finds them. Parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin. He is searching and finding persons. He's searching for faith and finding it. And yet we also read that we are to, to search and find him. If we seek, we shall find. And this ultimately is talking about our own spiritual uh, search for, for him. That we are to, to search and to find him. And so you can see how when, as it were, God and man or Jesus and man meet, there is some spark that, that is so great that it lights up the cosmos, that all the angels of heaven rejoice, because God is in search of man, and Jesus is in search of faith. It's not a, as if they are just waiting for people to come, indifferent, you want to come to me, you, you're welcome, but no, he is in search of man, and searching to find faith, and when we on our side are searching for him and we find him, and he's from his end searching for us and finds us, then there is that spark. There is that spark that, that lights up the cosmos. All the angels of heaven rejoice and one sinner repents. And so when people say, oh, well, I searched for the truth, I searched for God for many years before I found it. Yeah, okay, I accept that. But don't have the idea that God was just sitting there waiting for you. Uh, he was in search of you. He was in search of you. And uh, partly the amount of time that you spent coming to him, that I spent, that, that we've all spent uh, coming to him and finding him, is uh, partly our own fault. Partly the internal dysfunction of our own search. Uh, because he is in search of man. And you, you get this in Jeremiah where uh, he's told, as it were, to, to run around the streets and the squares of Jerusalem to see if he might find anyone who had a heart for God. And in that, Jeremiah was manifesting God, God's search for man. Now, by the way, 
he, uh, the Lord here uh, says that he had not found so great faith. Uh, and yet he says that in response to this man's comment, that look, verse 9, the man says, oh, I'm a man under authority, I say to one, come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. And that is sort of uh, said in response to the Lord Jesus saying in verse 7, I will come, I will come and heal him. And the man says, wow, I also have a people under me, and I say to one guy, come and, he, uh, come and he comes. I've said to you, come and you come, wow. So this man had really quite an insight into the power of prayer, that in a sense, prayer is the word of command. Now, if I was Jesus, I would have said, well, I haven't found anyone who understands as well as you do, who really gets it. But he says, I haven't found so great faith. Now, as I say, contextually, he means that I haven't found such great understanding. But faith must have content. We talk about faith, what do you mean? Faith in what? Uh, belief is belief in something, in, in content. It's not just existing in a vacuum, in a vague sense. I believe. Well, yeah, I'm a believer. What are you a believer in? You know? Pink elephants, gold, Jesus? Uh, uh, you know, what, what do you believe in? And when you say you believe in Jesus, what do you mean by that? You know, do you mean that? Uh, Muslims will say, I, I believe in Jesus. They mean, I believe he existed and he was a prophet and so forth. But they, they don't believe in him uh, in a biblical sense. And so faith has content. Just remember that. And this content requires some level of understanding. Well, that's clearly what this man had. Now, that is not to uh, glorify in any sense intellectualism. Uh, but it is also to say that there must be a, a basis of of understanding. So then, verse 13, Go your way, the Lord says to the centurion, and as you have believed, so it shall be done unto you. As so uh, could possibly imply that the, the degree of healing was relative to the degree of faith. As you have believed, so may it be done unto you. As if there's a sliding scale there uh, that is controlled by our faith. Go your way. Well, so often the Lord Jesus says this to people. Go your way. Um, he actually has said it to the, just in verse 4 to the healed leper. Go your way. And you'll see it again in Matthew 9 verse 6 to the paralyzed man. Uh, he says it to Legion in Mark 5.19. Go your way. Uh, Mark 5.34 to the woman with an issue of blood. Go your way. To the uh, Syrophoenician woman, Mark 7, go your way. The rich young man, Mark 10, go your way. To the blind man who he healed, Mark 10, 52, go your way. To the crowd of lepers that he healed, go your way. To the Samaritan woman, John 4, 16, go your way. To the blind man at the pool of Siloam, go your way. To Lazarus when he resurrected him, go your way. Sometimes translated depart, but it's in all those cases it's the same Greek word, go your way. So this, again, is a characteristic of the Lord. He has interaction with a person, and then he says, go your way. And I think the implication is that we each have our own way that we are to walk for him. And we are sent on that, on that walk, as it were, on that way. And I think it all comes to a climax at the end of the Gospels, where... Again, the same word is used in Mark 16, verse 7, uh, about them going into all the world to, to preach the gospel. We are sent out. And I think that all these uh, descriptions of being sent forth after an interaction with Jesus, 
they all kind of come to their come to their full term in the final command in the great uh, commission go your way out into the world to to, to spread the gospel <clears throat> so then we are not simply uh, converted we don't simply have a meeting with Jesus we are being sent out there is a very definite sense of being sent out on our way that we have work to do for him so conversion is not therefore assigning up to a set of doctrine, a set of theological positions, a set of truths, but it is an acceptance uh, that I have been sent on a mission. And this is actually what, consciously, un- unconsciously, we all need, a mission, a sending, not chasing our tails in this world, not kidding ourselves that we're doing something for people in a very uh, vague sort of sense, as you know, every Tom, Dick and Harry reckons, in their better moments, that they have some altruistic motive in their existence in this world, where most people are simply kicking time, killing time, waiting for the final uh, uh, moment of their death. When we actually have a mission, we have been sent to do something. We've been given the talents, and we are to go and trade with them. Now, verse 14, when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laying down and sick of a fever, and he touched her hand. Well, the implication there is that, oh, he walks into the house, he sees this lady sick, and he says, okay, I'll give you a hand. But actually putting the gospel records together, that's not what happened. Mark 1 verse 31 says that they told him about her, and then he touched her hand. Now, putting it together, he comes in there, he sees her laying there sick, and they tell her, they tell him about her. Like, can you, can you help her? Okay, uh, sure. The implication, I think, is that he waited to be asked, although he noticed the problem. He waited to be asked. Now, is that not how the Lord operates all the time? He surely sees the problem. But he doesn't necessarily act on his initiative until we take the initiative of asking him. And you see this, I think, uh, most clearly... Later on in this chapter, when they're in the in the ship, and uh, Jesus, verse 24, was asleep. And yet it says there's this great tempest in the sea, uh, and the, the Greek word there is an earthquake. Uh, there was a tidal wave from, from well, a, a huge wave anyway, maybe not tidal, but a huge wave from the earthquake. And the ship was covered, absolutely hidden, the Greek means, with waves. But he was asleep. I mean, since when? I mean, this wasn't like a great liner they were on. This was an open boat. Was he really asleep? Well, no. This is an example of what could be called phenomenological language. That is, whereby something is described as it appeared to people. It, It appeared that he was asleep. But I mean, since when? When you're covered in water, which is what the, these Greek words mean, I mean, since when was he really asleep? Uh, I think the point is that he was waiting for them to say to him, verse 25, after having done all they humanly could in their human strength, he was waiting for them to come to him and say, Lord, save us, to awaken, to awaken him, we're perishing, Lord, save us. Now, this is the same with when he's on the road to Emmaus. He makes as if he's going to go a bit further. And they say, no, no, Lord, please come in. Well, they don't say Lord, but they say, please come and stay with us. He's like, oh, no, but I'm going further. 
Well, why did he do that? Was he playing a game? Well, to some degree. But the point was, I want you to have your desperation peaked so that you will desperately ask me into your life, into your home, in that case. And, and so it was here. And so it was with the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And so it is so often in life. You could argue that God is cruel, or Jesus is cruel, but they're not. Of course not, they are love itself. But they will let a situation go to a point whereby we desperately come to them. They want to pique our desperation. Give you another example. When the Lord is walking on the water and he makes as if he's going to walk past them. There they are in another incident on the, uh, on the sea. Um, and then, wow, we're just about to drown. And there's Jesus walking on the sea. But he's walking past us. Like, Jesus, hello. Hello, Jesus, we're here. Can you see? You've just come at the right time. Jesus, hello. <laughs> you know? Why did he do that? He wasn't being cruel. He wanted to elicit faith from them. He wanted to elicit that sense of desperation. And that's what he does here with Peter's uh, mother-in-law. And so she arises in response to being cured. Um, verse 16. Yeah, verse 15. She arises and responds. She doesn't say, ah, oh, yeah, thanks for that, Jesus. Yeah, appreciate it. She ministers unto them. That is her response. And uh, the rabbis taught that a woman should not serve a man at table. And this uh, word for ministering definitely means that. She served at table. And yet, rabbis had said that a woman was not to do that to a man. And yet, the Lord says here quite clearly, uh, well, the record says quite clearly that that's what she did. So then her response to having been uh, cured was to do that which in the eyes of uh, of the world in which she lived was wrong, was totally unacceptable, was not understandable, and so forth. And that really is our response, it seems to me. And I, I want you to, to notice that she's described as having a, a fever, verse 14. And literally, this is a fire, that's what it means, because people thought that if you had a high temperature, like she obviously had, you were on fire inside you. That's why they used to drag sick people through all kind of water, etc., to put out the fire inside them. And of course, it didn't do them any good. And yet the Lord touches her hand, an extremity, when the idea was, no, 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 the, the fire's within. No, no, no. The Lord touches her hand. And I think he's very gentle here in the way that he deconstructs the wrong ideas about demons. He does not uh, give them a lecture about, you know what, She's not really sick of a fever. She hasn't really got a fire inside her. Yeah, no, no, no. Okay, that's how you see it. Right, fine. Okay. Uh, he goes along with that. But he shows by his action, by touching her hand, an extremity, uh, not putting his hand or putting ice or, 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 or didn't have ice, but, you know, putting cold water or something uh, on her back or in the middle of her, her back or whatever, uh, to, to put the fire out. No, no, he, he showed very gently that this is not the right belief. But he does that by implication. I think the, the belief in demons was so so deep, and, and the, the belief in, in these wrong medical ideas, like a fever is because you've got a fire inside you, 
And this was so deeply entrenched that he did not directly, in a head-on sense, seek to collide with it. He rather very gently worked around it. Verse 17 quotes from Isaiah that in doing this healing, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, which uh, just shows that the idea of uh, of uh, the 16 people possessed with demons and all this kind of stuff, uh, the, these were sicknesses and infirmities. So this is actually made quite clear here in this verse, that being possessed with demons, he, he, uh, he cast out the spirits with his with his word to fulfill what Isaiah had said, that he himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So cast out demons was to cure sickness, and that's, that's pretty clear there. But he himself took our sicknesses. So then if you're suffering from some very rare disease, and you might think, well, how can the Lord Jesus identify with me? Because he never had this particular disease, or sickness, or whatever. Let's say you don't have any legs. Well, Jesus had uh, his legs, as far as we know. How can he identify with you? Well, this is the nature of his identity with us, that he himself took, as it were, upon himself and carried all kinds of human sickness. And that's why the healing accounts keep mentioning that people with all types, with all kinds of disease were healed. But he didn't just press a button and and cure them. He took this very personally. You remember when the woman touches his, his coat, he turns around and says, I can feel the virtue's gone out of me. It was not painless. It wasn't just pressing a button and, and bringing a, a healing about. There was something personal that he took upon himself. And of course, this is quoted from Isaiah. And where in Isaiah? From Isaiah 53. And what's that? It's a prophecy about the crucifixion. But there, on the cross, he carried our sicknesses and, and took our infirmities. But it's quoted here about his life, an incident during his ministry. It just shows that we, we would be wrong to draw too big a, a, a barrier, a difference between his death on the cross and his mortal life. That actually his death on the cross was, in essence, lived out in his life, in his mortal life. Uh, and the same with us, that the carrying of the cross, the, the living of the Christian life, is not just in a few uh, highly intense, highly public moments of commitment, of choice, this way or the other way. It is actually lived out in human life. And there's, a, as I say, a, a continuum right up to, 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 to the cross. Then a, a scribe, verse 19, comes to him and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. <clears throat> well, a massive 76 times in the Gospels you read of people following Jesus. And those people who followed Jesus in the Gospels, these people are representative of us. Because in Revelation 14 verse 4, the faithful are described as those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And this is the significance in John's Gospel of people uh, being described as uh, following him to the cross, the, the ministering women, and it mentions, and they followed him also in Galilee. So then it is not simply uh, following him as the crowds did just now and again, just hanging about at the edge of the crowd, uh, getting a bit of benefit from the miracles, hearing a garbled version of what Jesus was saying right up the front, because, I mean, these crowds were huge. Luke says there were so many they trod one upon another at one stage. Um, There is, in the Gospels, a following him 
uh, on a, a kind of a surface level, like these huge crowds following him, who it seems were not ultimately saved, uh, because the same crowds in, in the end cried out for his death. And there is the inner circle, the disciples and the ministering women who follow him right to the end. And so the challenge to us in our following is whether we are just following in the crowd mentality, whether we are simply Christian because of a culture, because of how you were brought up, because when you were a teenager it was easier to follow the faith of your fathers and to rebel against it, or whether really you are in the inner circle, who will follow to the end, as Peter says, to prison or to death. And the Lord tries to get this point over to this guy and says, look, Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. The only other time that phrase, the Greek phrase that's translated to lay his head, is used is in John 19 verse 30, where we read that when he died, he bowed his head, he laid his head down. And I think the Lord had that in view. And, of course, Jesus did many nights have somewhere to lay his head. We know, it was the home in Bethany, etc., but I think he's trying to be as demanding as possible to this man. He's trying to talk to all those who like the idea of being a Jesus groupie, who like the idea of being in the in the club, uh, and uh, certainly in the community that uh, I, I'm from, uh, there's a big club mentality. And this is, unfortunately, the mentality of the crowds following Jesus. And the Lord is saying, no, it's not a case of being in the club, it is a case of following me, and it's very, very difficult. And he's addressing this club mentality of just being in the, in the group. He's saying, look, he's almost over-exaggerating, uh, using hyperbole, to, to make the point that it's very demanding. He says, look, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. And there's the allusion to bowing the head at the end of the crucifixion process. As I say, John 19.30, the only time that phrase is elsewhere used. And even though the Lord often did have somewhere to lay his head, he's saying to this man, he's trying to make it as tough as possible to make him realize. And then, verse 22, he continues that and says, let the dead bury their dead. The guy says, another guy says, look, I, uh, I've first got to go and bury my father. And it was another of his disciples who said that. So this was someone who was following, and he says, oh, i just got to go and bury my father. Now, we can easily overlook the huge significance attached to burying the father. Uh, the Jews taught that unless uh, a son buried his father, the father was, as it were, not buried properly. And this was a huge issue, that really a son must be allowed to bury his father. And uh, it was unheard of, really, to demand that someone skipped their father's funeral with all the social problems that this would involve. You know, the argument would have been, oh, well, by going to my father's funeral, I, I'm being kind to people. I'm doing this for people. And the Lord says, no, 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 you put me above that. This is very demanding. So many people will justify all kinds of career decisions, all kind of economic decisions by saying, oh, yeah, I'm doing this for people. No, no. <laughs> The Lord's saying, don't go to your father's funeral. In this case, I don't say he's saying it to all of us, but he's saying to this guy who considers himself a disciple. He says, no, you let the dead bury their dead, but you have got to put my service above, above that. This is extremely demanding. Now, in the Old Testament, 
the only guy, the only person uh, who was really allowed to get out of burying his father, according to Leviticus 21 verse 11, was the high priest. Uh, because if he was defiled even by his, the body of his parents, then he was unable to do the job. So the Lord is saying, look, I'm asking you to rise up not only to the spirit of priesthood, but to even the spirit of the high priest. Now again, we see the, the call come to us to not leave uh, all our religious responsibilities, as it were, to other people, which is the mentality of the flesh, which is the mentality of Israel, which is the mentality of all organized religion. But the Lord is saying, you are the one, you are the man, you do it, you do this. And of course, the whole idea of not uh, being involved in the funeral rites for your family, this, uh, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel had this in Ezekiel 24. God forbade Ezekiel to carry out the mourning rituals associated with his wife's funeral. Jeremiah, chapter 16 of Jeremiah, he's forbidden to participate in lamentation for the dead in a house of mourning. So what the Lord is saying is, look, I'm asking you, you would-be disciple, you who are hanging around on the fringe, who seems to like the idea of being in my inner circle, okay, you, you really want to follow me? Well, I've got nowhere to lay my head. As I said, that, that's somewhat of an exaggeration because he often did have somewhere to lay his head. And he's saying, likewise here, you will go and bury your father? No, don't do that. Get in the spirit of the high priest and of the prophets. So then these men were no longer to be seen as sort of white-faced, uh, holy men like icons. He's saying, you are them. In the new Israel, in the new setup that I am creating, you are them. And so, he is in one sense a demanding Lord. Sometimes in reading the scriptures, I mean, I almost feel that he, uh, he'd almost save anyone. Really, that all you've got to do is say yes. And those verses, especially, I, I feel the parable of the prodigal son uh, really, really brings that out, that the father so wants to save us, really, in spite of ourselves, it seems. Just if you want to say yes, he's there. And yet, on the other hand, quite appropriately, for someone who has loved us so much as he has, uh, there is this demanding side. And that demanding side of the Lord uh, cannot be cannot be reasoned away or politely explained away. It is quite right that that paradox, if you like, should be there. And I suggest that it, it is a, a purposefully, consciously irreconcilable paradox. By that I mean that is not resoluble in terms of dialectic, as it were. In other words, to put on one side, parable of the prodigal son, yeah, all you've got to do is say yes, uh, he, he so wants to save you. And on the other side, this demanding Lord who says, you're not even to go to your father's funeral. You put me before that. And don't kid yourself that you're just doing something for people. No, 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 no. You come and follow me and do my work. Right? On the other, that, that's what you've got on one hand. On the other hand, you've got the parable of the prodigal son. Now, it's very easy to start trying to make up all kinds of clever, clever explanations and say, ah, yes, but you see, what he meant was blah, blah, blah. Now, I, none of those explanations cut it, at least not for me. I suggest that the Bible does work in terms of irreconcilable paradox. On one hand, the ease of salvation, and on the other, the demanding Lord. And I do not think, if you see what I'm saying, that there is some... Uh, form of words, some form of interpretation, some form of exposition, some 
polite, uh, cool explanation that some guy comes out with that we all say, ah, yeah, that makes sense. No, I, I personally don't think it's there. I submit to you that this is an irreconcilable paradox. And it's therefore got teeth, because the wonder of the offer of salvation, just by saying yes, almost, uh, is, uh, is there, uh, and has to be given its due weight. And the words of the demanding Lord that we have just spoken about, they also remain there, with uh, absolute full weight demanded by them. Well, we've mentioned about the, the disciples uh, then in the, in the ship, and the, there's an earthquake, a great uh, a tempest, uh, and the ship is, is hidden underneath the waves, the Greek says, and he shows himself to be asleep, and then he arises and rebukes the wind and the sea, and there's this great calm, and all three of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record that, this great calm, as if this was really unusual. They were really struck by this, all of them. And the men marveled, verse 27, saying, What manner of man is this? Why are they called the men? Well, I think it's to connect with the fact that they talk about Jesus as, What manner of man is this? The men said, What manner of man is this? It really shows his humanity. And the idea of what manner of man is, What sort of man is this? They were struggling, in the same way as Trinitarians struggle, when they encounter the idea of the genuinely human Jesus, who had such divine power. Can he really be one of us? And yet these disciples, these men, said, wow, this is a man. And actually, the position that we have, that Jesus was not God, but he had human nature, this, I think, is unpopular to so many people because it demands so much faith. It demands a lot of faith to believe that that he really had human nature but overcame to the end. And Peter must have thought a lot about this, because he uses this very same phrase in his letters, when he says, what manner of persons, what manner of men ought we to be? So he's remembering this incident, where we, he says, yeah, we looked at him and we thought, what manner of man is this? But eventually he came to full faith that yes, he was of our nature. And therefore, because he was of our nature, it is not impossible for us to be as him in that sense. We may not be able to do the miracles that he did, but in essence, uh, to be as him. And it's such a challenge. His humanity is such a challenge that we cannot excuse ourselves by saying, yeah, well, that was Jesus. He was kind of God, or, you know, as Trinitarians would say, uh, he, he was somehow not human. No, no, no. The, the, the tough news is that he was of our nature, and therefore, and thereby, he shows us the huge possibilities which there are within human nature. The huge potential which there is in being human. And therefore, as they said, what manner of man is this? Peter, later reflection, can say, challenge us, and what manner of men ought you to be?